Uh, thank you all very, very much for coming today. It's, uh, it's fantastic to see lots and lots of people here. Um, we will have a welcome to country from uh, Auntie Tina Brown, um, uh, Nanual Elder, uh, very soon. Uh, but I will start the day off by acknowledging that we are on Nanual country. Pay my respects on behalf of the Green Institute and of all of us here to elders past, present and emerging, acknowledging that this is Aboriginal land, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. It is stolen land. And when we're here on this land talking about democracy, it is extraordinarily important that we acknowledge that it is not our land that we're talking about democracy on. And the challenges that we, the settler colonialist Australians, face in our democracy pale in comparison um, and acknowledging um, the horrible, um, just the most recent of the horrible events in Yundamu this week. Um, we must keep that absolutely top of mind as we discuss these issues over the course of the weekend. So thank you everyone for coming to Cultivating Democracy. It really is extremely exciting to see so many people passionate and ready to jump into these conversations, into big ideas, to challenge ourselves and work together towards deep, systemic, social, cultural, economic and political change. I want to especially acknowledge the elected representatives we have here with us. I'm not sure that everyone's here yet today, but I know that over the course of the day and the weekend, we'll have Senators Richard Di Natale, Larissa Waters, Rachel Seward, Janet Rice, Pete Wish-Wilson, Sarah Hanson-Young and Adam Bant, as well as State and Territory MPs, Mark Parnell, Tim Reid, Rosalie Woodruff, Caroline Lakuta, Abigail Boyd and Diane Evers. Thank you all for making time in your busy schedules to come and be part of this conversation. But I would, of course, also note that, as we Greens have always acknowledged, parliaments are only one aspect of democracy. All of us have a critical role to play in democracy, and that's really what we're here to explore at length this weekend. So democracy has never been complete, certainly not at least in the Western understanding and history of democracy. It's always been exclusionary to a greater and lesser extent of women, of non-citizens, of indigenous people, of occupied people, of children, of dissidents, of those without wealth, of non-humans, all other entities with whom we coexist. And though we like to think of history as a progression, ever more complete democracy, that as we make each step, we lock it in forever to come, democracy is also fragile. The history of my own family, who were established, assimilated, middle-class professional Jews in Europe in the 1920s and 30s, absolutely confidently believing that the democratic systems that they lived in would keep them safe, which is why they stayed, until it was ripped away, is only one example among a myriad of the fragility of democracy. People have recently started to talk about this phenomenon of democratic retreat, which is a fascinatingly passive term, but the active theft, destruction, and openly more broadly violent war on democracy by those seeking to consolidate their power. Donations, privatizations, investor state dispute resolution, so much more, hand political control, 
to corporations over citizens. Advocacy is suppressed, protest is criminalised, and police forces, as we've seen yet again recently, are turned into private militias for mining giants. We see extraordinary attacks on whistleblowers and public broadcasting, and we hear blatantly authoritarian claims from political leaders. We're standing right now at an inflection point in history. The last few centuries of deeply anti-ecological thinking have led us to a point of intersecting crises, ecological crisis, social crisis, economic crisis, democratic crisis, where frankly, the more you look, the more it is impossible to imagine the status quo continuing. That world is over. And we have two potential paths in front of us. If we follow the road that those in political and economic power are insisting on, there is a non-zero chance of human extinction this century, taking with us a substantial proportion of other life on this planet. But there's a very high chance of a plunge into autocracies, the destruction of most of our democratic rights and norms, leaving survival for some in a horribly impoverished world. But there's another road, a road to not just surviving, but thriving together. And that's the road that we're here to talk about this weekend. It's important to emphasize as we start these conversations, simply seeking to repair our existing systems is insufficient. And the sooner we acknowledge that, the better. I make two contentions here. Firstly, our political systems, our democratic institutions and norms are simply incapable of tackling the immense, overwhelming and interconnected crises we face. These systems are structured around and built to enforce and buttress the fundamental inequities, capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy and extractivism that are the cause of these crises. As such, they cannot enable the solutions. Secondly, these systems are uniquely ill-suited to enabling human survival in the far less hospitable world that they have created. In order to both turn around ecological collapse and generate the resilience we need to survive and thrive together in the decades ahead, we need to cultivate new democratic norms and institutions. Norms and institutions based on the principles and lessons of ecology, as Indigenous people have always understood. Ecological thinking is grounded in interconnection, diversity and impermanence. Every part of an ecology is connected to and has impacts on every other part. A small change for one species or community can have huge ramifications for others. In ecology, Resilience comes from diversity. Overdominance of one part very frequently triggers collapse. Whereas in a machine, each part of the whole is replaceable, in an ecology, the parts matter as much as the whole, creating a complex interplay, a coexistence, a balance of competition and cooperation, teeming with ambiguity and unintended consequences. But we find ourselves today living in the hegemony of anti-ecological thinking, as I said. If ecological thinking values interconnection, diversity and impermanence, 
anti-ecological thinking is about disconnection, homogenization, and dominance. It's a mechanistic, dualistic, linear mode of thought, separating man from nature, man from woman, man from non-white, tasking man with subduing the other. It's colonialist thinking, patriarchal thinking, capitalist and extractivist thinking. It is inherent in a representative democratic system which is frankly designed to be vulnerable to corporate capture. It can be seen in the way governments enable private profit while suppressing public participation and protest. It's horrifically visible in prison camps for refugees and the criminalization of living black or brown. It pulls us apart, dividing in order to conquer, with at its core a medieval adversarial structure of attacking opponents and refusing to back down. With its insistence on the primacy of money, it leads to insanities such as gutting funding to fire services while smoothing the path for opening new coal-fired power stations. And the disconnection from nature and from each other has now seen our political discourse stunningly disconnected from reality in our post-truth world. This is why I say our system is incapable of tackling the crises we face and uniquely ill-suited to enabling us to survive. We need to rebuild from the grassroots up. And the best model to follow as we do so is the model of ecology. The interconnection of an ecology rather than a machine, where the parts matter as much as the whole, implies deep democracy based in participatory processes with nested subsidiary structures from the local to the global, ensuring decisions are made by and for the benefit of people at the most local level possible. It insists that you cannot tackle environmental problems separate from social and economic ones and vice versa. It sees government's role as enabling people and communities to find their own way together within the context of equity and sustainability backed by scientific and expert advice and within clear, democratically developed limits to prevent abuse. The recognition that diversity is key to resilience implies putting equity, decentralization and universalism at the core of ecological democracy. Neither erasing differences between people nor rejecting the other, it embraces coexistence. It flips political practice from the antagonistic adversarial model to a cooperative, agonistic, consensus-based one in our more participatory processes. Respecting complexity, uncertainty and ambiguity, it will see us replace linear, simplistic, siloed solutions to individual problems with systemic approaches that recognise a plurality of issues, causes and solutions to be finessed and implemented at the local level by the local community. The principle of impermanence helps us understand that government and economy are no more than tools that we invented and can reinvent. Institutions need to change, not just to keep up with changing circumstances, but because new generations might well be advised to revisit them to construct their own models of trust. What does this vision of ecological democracy mean for the Greens? for how we campaign and work in communities and for what we do with our role in parliaments and in governments. To take the example of the climate crisis, there are clear lessons for both policy and activism 
for cutting pollution to zero, and for cultivating the resilience we need to survive. Some we're already doing. Some are a small step away. Some, I believe, are a shift in focus. Ecological democracy tells us what we know, that climate policy can't be boiled down to an efficient carbon price. Climate policy is everything from supporting locally grown food and community transport initiatives to encouraging renewable energy cooperatives, from removing the ability of corporations to block action to officially granting the Great Barrier Reef the legal right to survive, from giving Indigenous communities handing back to Indigenous communities the right to say no to coal mining on their land, at the very least, to enabling citizens to decide how their suburbs are developed for their own use rather than for developer profits. Climate policy is structurally replacing the discount rate in economic models with an interest rate to make sure we properly value future generations instead of deliberately devaluing them. Climate policy requires democratic participation at the hyper-local level, at the global level, and at every level in between, not just because local communities better understand how to implement solutions for themselves, but also because this democratic engagement is vital to holding back the dark, exclusionary impulses that climate disasters will only exacerbate. On the campaigning side, what if we deepened our electoral outreach into community building? What if we used our door knocking and letterboxing to let people know about local sharing groups and community gardens, repair cafes and sports associations, invite them to get involved and invite them to come to community meetings to co-design more local climate positive and social cohesion projects? What if we held thousands of community citizens assemblies supported by and through those local groups as well as through unions interwoven with indigenous truth-telling and leadership actively embracing culturally and linguistically diverse community groups, new migrants and refugees, or just gathering around a bunch of streets to discuss what each community can do locally or across geographically dispersed interest groups collectively to confront and prepare for the climate crisis. What if each of those assemblies sent representatives to regional assemblies or even just shared what they're doing on online clearinghouses so they could learn from and inspire each other and so they could consciously see their local action as a vital piece of the puzzle of collective action, which is building power, challenging the anti-ecological hegemony, cultivating the ecological alternative, growing up through cracks in the pavement. That is what this weekend is about. So we've got four sessions today, all in plenary, so you don't need to miss anything, with 15 brilliant speakers to introduce you to some big, challenging ideas. I want to take the opportunity to thank all of our speakers who've given their time to us today very generously to share their work and ideas and to inspire us. Janara Garengaring, Lydia Thorpe, Paul Collis and Crystal Hurst will discuss Indigenous democracy, how we can decolonise democratic ideas and practice and rebuild guided by Indigenous expertise. Simon Niemeyer, Amanda Carl, Tim Dunlop and Nicola Paris will explore ideas new and old for deepening democratic involvement, from participatory decision-making to protest and activism. John Quiggan, Celeste Little, Claire Osage and Elise Klein will bring forward a diverse array of ideas for democratising the economy, from challenging corporations to workplace democracy to challenging the centrality of work itself. 
Natalie Osborne and Nikki Eisen and um, Virginia Marshall has sadly had to pull out today because she's been invited to talk live on ABC about Yundamu and deaths in custody, uh, which is extraordinarily important, of course. Um, we completely understand um, her inability to make it this afternoon. Um, would have loved to have her wisdom. You can read some of it on the Green Agenda website, and um, she's promised to make available the speech she was going to make as well that we can publish. The wonderful um, Margaret Blakers has agreed to step in at completely last-minute notice to join that last panel, which will look at the intersection of ecology and democracy, from governance of, of environmental um, protection to community energy to reclaiming the city as commons. There'll be Q&As for each of the four sessions, giving you the opportunity to interrogate the ideas chaired by Janara Garengarang, Larissa Waters, Adam Bant, and Sarah Hanson-Young. And then over the weekend, we've got a series of deliberative sessions, digging into the ideas together, cooperatively, learning by doing, being ecological, and making the path as we're walking it, just like the wombats do. So, shall we get into it? My name's Elisa Jenkins, and I work with Tim Hollow at the Green Institute. I'm the Comms and Projects Officer. And um, I just wanted to say a few words. I won't be long. <laughs> um, now, as a Greens member of 16 years, I recall when I first joined the party in my late 20s, um, quite a few members expressing how wonderful it would be to have a think tank or an institute, a space where green ideas could flourish. So when Margaret Blakers and Christine Milne put the call out in 2008 for board directors of formalised Green Institute, I jumped at the chance to be involved. I was a board member for seven years. Then when Margaret left and Tim became executive director, I left the board to live in New York for a while. Then upon my return, I was excited to learn that Tim needed some communications and project support. And Tim and I have now been working together for about three years. Perhaps I'm a bit biased, but the Green Institute is my favourite non-profit organisation in Australia. <laughs> it's an organisation that's always energised me. Ideas energise me. And for me, ideas bring hope. Ideas are exhilarating. Ideas challenge me and they excite me. It's been wonderful supporting the Green Institute to evolve over the last 10 years. And we wouldn't have achieved half of what we have achieved without the generous bequest we received from Louise Crosley. Such a wonderful gift. Now, the board has recently recast our mission statement as cultivating ideas for green politics. And I guess that's why we're all here today, coming together to do just that. Now, as you can probably imagine, for those who know Tim, Tim is a wonderful person to work for. He has patience and kindness and intellect and grace, all wrapped up in one person. It's a rare combination, and I'm very lucky to have him as a boss. Tim is an ideas person, and he, and he, but he doesn't do this in a bubble. He's also a curator of, it, of ideas and has pulled together some of the most wonderful publications featuring some really extraordinary contributors. Uh, some of you who are in this room today. So if you haven't already, please do check out Rebalancing Rights, Communities, Corporations and Nature and Views of a UBI on our website. These publications are chock full of smarts and heart. Now, I'm, I'm so excited to be involved in the next part of Tim's vision, the new vision of the Green Institute to connect 
the philosophy, policy, and activism of ecological democracy. Our aim is to bring the, Green, the Greens party together around a deeper shared connection of our political philosophy and use that understanding to guide how we further develop policy and how we work in the community. Now, one of the things Tim talks about, something I really connect with as a children's entertainer, so I'm also a puppeteer, is the opportunity to find the joy with this apocalyptic work, inspiring people to get involved, pushing past the climate emergency into exciting transformation. So for those of you who apocalyptic is a new word, it's a nice tongue twister, that's someone who knows it's all going to shit but still thinks it will turn out okay. So, so what do we plan? <laughs> Excellent. So what do we plan to do in practice at the Green Institute? So aside from this 2019 conference, there will be further writing and discussion around the ideas through webinars, events, blog pieces and publications, practical experiments with, around participatory democracy, further exploration of rebalancing rights, again with papers, webinars and deliberative sessions around rights of nature, as well as constraining corporate power and more work on the UBI focused on the basic income, uh, we're going to focus on the basic income Earth Network Global Congress in Brisbane in September 2020. And of course, Green Agenda, we were talking about media before in the, in the last session, a wonderful media hub uh, edited by Simon Copland and Felicity Gray, featuring inspiring authors, a space I encourage you to sign up to and regularly visit, particularly if you're keen to remove yourself from the dominating fast pace of the superficial 24-hour news cycle. So slow down and connect with Green Agenda. It's media for Greens, funded by Greens. So with that all said, today I'm launching our regular giving program. Now you will have all got postcards on your seats there today, uh, calling on your support. So if you have the financial capacity, please do support our work. Who knows, perhaps a regular donation to us will bring you some regular joy. <laughs> Thanks, everyone.